Welcome to the BC Bar Community's Law Student Podcast with your host, Sienna Hurd, 2L at American University, Washington College of Law. Kirsten Wolford, 3L at the George Washington University Law School. Renata Mitchell, 3L at the George Washington University Law School. Elena Hoffman, 2L at the George Washington University Law School. And you're listening to Let's Brief It. Hello and welcome to Let's Brief It. We're your hosts, Kirsten Wolford and Sienna Hurd. And today we're here to talk to you about jury trials, status conferences, and the courts in the time of COVID. So today we are joined both by Lucretia Johnson, the managing attorney and founder of LPJ Legal, a DC-based law firm. And Lucretia represents clients in business and real estate law. We also have with us Judge Gregory Mize, Judge Gregory Mize is a retired judge from the D.C. Superior Court and is currently a judicial fellow at the National Center for State Court Center for the Jury Studies team. Um, And at this point, if Lucretia and Judge Mize would like to talk a little bit about your paths of how you got here. I basically, I went to school in North Carolina. I decided I didn't want to stay there. I took the Maryland bar. I worked in a big law for a few years, and then afterwards, I was like, oh, it could be fun to open my own practice. Don't know what I was thinking. Uh, So it has been fun, I joke. Um, But, and that's how I got here, and I chose my practice areas that I was good at and that I enjoy doing. So that's the good joy in working for yourself. You can do the cases you want to do. I came to Washington, D.C. to go to law school at Georgetown in the early 1970s, grew up in Chicago. And during my law school days, I had the wonderful opportunity to be uh, the law clerk to a very competent senior trial attorney. He was took me under his wings. I went to court with him almost daily. I took notes. I sat at counsel table with him and I fell in love with jury trials. And after graduation, I became a trial lawyer in his law firm. And one of our clients got later in years, uh, got elected to the DC city council. I eventually became the general counsel to the city council. And then I was appointed to the bench by the first president Bush in 1990. My love of jury trials continues. I've presided over hundreds of jury trials. And uh, after retiring, I wanted to continue working on jury trial innovations and helping courts and judges around the country manage jury trials in um, the best possible way. And I'm very pleased to have been invited to this uh, webinar. Thank you both. Um, We're both very happy to have you here as well. Um, And so we're at a point right now where the show must go on and jury trials are no exception. Even when we're able to meet in person in a safe environment, Clients are appreciating the decrease in legal fees when lawyers don't have to travel, um, leave home, and courts are putting in resources to virtual systems that could potentially remain in place for hearings or status conferences uh, at the least. There's not a definitive end in sight to this pandemic, so many jurisdictions are exploring their options for moving forward with virtual jury trials in a full virtual format or even a hybrid approach. So let's talk about the good, the bad, and the unconstitutional. Great. So jumping right into it, generally speaking, um, and we'll start with you, Lucretia, what types of changes have you seen as a practitioner since the pandemic started in relation to virtual hearings? 
Um, so the virtual hearings that I've been a part of, at first there were a few technical glitches of everyone getting used to everything, um, including the judges and the clerks. But it seems as though now everyone, most courtrooms have a, a procedure in place to where they follow. So if you're appearing in front of Judge A in DC, you know this will be the procedure that they follow. If you're appearing in front of Judge A in Montgomery County, you know this is the procedure they follow. I actually enjoy it far more than I thought I would. Uh, <laughs> in the beginning, I was always fully dressed because your mindset is court. So I'm fully dressed sitting at my desk and I come on and I realize that some of the more seasoned attorneys and everyone else is not even on camera. So they don't, <laughs> no one cares that I am fully dressed. <laughs> so um, it, I, I have enjoyed it. I think that it, it definitely moves, especially for status conferences, far more efficiently than it does for a courtroom full of attorneys and their clients. And so I, I very much appreciate it. And I really hope that that is something that continues. And it seems as though, especially in D.C., that the judges do want it to continue because they can move through their dockets faster. Thank you. That's, I mean, very good insight. Thank you. Um, and from a practical standpoint, and I'm asking this question to both or either of you, um, are there concerns with jurors being distracted or looking up outside information during a virtual jury trial? And if so, how is this the same or different from the existing distractions that jurors might face in person? All of us, I assume, and our listeners have done some kind of video conferencing in this crazy pandemic time. And we, we see um, things in the little tiles of participants. We see their room, how they're dressed. And if some participants have children or uh, air conditioning repairmen coming, uh, there's all sorts of possible distractions uh, that uh, we won't have in a courtroom as a courtroom is got a decor, rather solemn usually, very dignified, plain, uh, and judge on the elevated bench and the lawyers and the clients in the well of the courtroom and a, a gallery of spectators, you know by just sitting in the jury box you're, where you're supposed to look, uh, you're not supposed to talk uh, until you get back to the deliberation room, can be very focused. And the differences between live jury trials and the virtual jury trials that are going on right now across the country are quite different. And I might say there are a few courts, uh, we study this at the National Center, Center for Jury Studies. There are courts, I'm thinking precisely of Orange County, California. They have had 90 live jury trials since June. You have uh, one jurisdiction going forward uh, very intently, and I trust safely, uh, while others uh, are holding back, like our own DC Superior Court. When the mayor continues to declare a health emergency, and now the latest ending of the declaration is December 3rd, I believe it is, courts have an obligation, just like businesses, to follow the health protocols. So depending on where the courthouse is, there's gonna be uh, full steam ahead or holding back until uh, it's safe. 
Yeah, I think for me that I, I agree with the judge that with jury trials, the courtroom provides certain protections from distractions that you just won't have. I think one of the things that people are really concerned about is what's kind of like what you asked that jurors will be suddenly Googling things or finding out something of their own about the case. But in, the way I see that is that basically that's also available to them in the courtroom. They don't necessarily do it in the jury box, but they have breaks. They have, so if that's something that someone is going to do, they're going to do it whether they are in the courtroom or at home. So the other distractions that the judge mentioned, I think that those are the bigger issues because when you are home, you do have other responsibilities and it doesn't matter that you're supposed to be this juror. If your child starts to cry, you're going to be like, okay, let me fix this. Or if my HVAC is down, I'm opening the door for the HVAC guy so I can have comforts at home. So those are, those are real distractions. It's also in bench trials, I've had to, one of the problems that I have had in bench trials is your exhibits and right in those the only people it's limited that has to see it but I can imagine how difficult it can be for a juror to see those because I had one bench trial well where I emailed everything beforehand to everyone for some reason the judge didn't get it so we had to pause a bench trial the clerk had to get them again and then the judge was like, because I was saying I can share it on the screen. And he was like, I can barely see you on the screen. I cannot see. <laughs> so he then printed them out so that he could have them. So I don't know how that would work in a jury trial. Whereas the judge who is, who knows what he's looking at, like he knows why he needs it. You have to realize that most jurors won't have any idea why this is important. So <laughs> that's a really good point. <laughs> Do you think that there are any Sixth Amendment concerns, either with delaying trials or having them virtually? Oh, there are indeed. The National Center for State Courts and legal advisors to court systems that have internal legal advisors are examining this over and over again. Under the uh, Sixth Amendment, each of us has a right to a speedy public trial before an impartial jury. And those key elements of the Sixth Amendment stay with us. We have to abide by them. So under the speedy trial rights that a defendant has, if he or she is locked up, uh, there's a, typically a 100-day rule. Uh, and you have to try that case within those tight timeframes. That is very hard to do in a pandemic. And I guess it's because of the overwhelming quality of the emergency, you, you got to do the best you can. You can't be perfect with the speedy trial uh, requirements. As I just said, California's Orange County in Southern California, they have decided it's, we got to get these trials underway. These defendants who are locked up deserve it. So all of those 90 trials since June that I spoke about are criminal cases. Later this year, they hope to have more courtrooms open and civil cases begin. The public trial, even in these trials in uh, California, uh, there may be some instances where the judge can't have a lot of spectators in the courtroom for health reasons. So courts set up uh, closed circuit television or audio systems in a neighboring courtroom or other space in the courthouse. And the public trial uh, requirement is met that way. 
there's also, as far as an impartial jury, there has to be a, under the Constitution, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, a jury has to be selected from a fair cross-section of the community. That means a pool of potential jurors that resembles the demographics of the jurisdiction's overall population. And what we're noticing uh, across the country is that people who are summoned to jury duty in this health emergency, for one reason or another, they're elderly or they've got a, a medical condition and they quickly get a deferral by the courts because of their health concerns. But others who maybe don't have a health concern and the court provides uh, virtual jury trials like Lucretia mentioned she's participated in, some of our citizens don't have the kind of broadband access that makes it possible for them to successfully participate in a virtual jury selection and ultimately in a trial. So that is gonna skew if more and more people can't participate because of broadband issues or they can't participate because of health issues. And that means that the elderly are more likely to seek deferrals. Those with modest incomes cannot participate because they don't have the, the broadband access. The representativeness, the cross-section quality of the jury pool will suffer. And this is of great concern to courts around the country. Are we going to be able to meet the fair cross-section requirement in the Constitution, uh, which has been interpreted to be an essential ingredient of having an impartial jury? Thank you so much for that answer, Judge Mize. Kind of along those lines, for both Lucretia and yourself, what do you think are some challenges lawyers might face in trying to connect with a virtual jury? Um, I think that there are issues that the judge mentioned uh, previously. Being inside of a courtroom is more than just you speaking and you listening, it's also you watching. Judges don't always say when they're annoyed with your line of questioning, but you can tell by how they move or something like, they don't like this, let me change it. It's the same way with a jury. You may think, oh, this is great. This is going to be what I need. I need to go this route. And you look over at your jury and they are not feeling what you're saying at all. So you know that and you know to change course. You can't do that virtually because it's too many little squares for you to try to figure it out. It's also the virtual backgrounds and different things like that that can alter. It gives like that pixel look sometimes. And so... I think that it's much harder to do that. Also, what you miss in a virtual trial is your opposing counsel. So if you are going down a line of questioning and you can see your opposing counsel's face or the way they're writing, you're, like, you're thinking, they can't counter this. This is what I need. Or if you see them smile or something, you realize they have evidence of something different or they're going to ask about something different. So those are all things that you are missing, especially in the hybrid situations. I did one bench trial where I was virtual and the opposing counsel was in the courtroom. Thankfully, we had an understanding judge because there was a lot of cell phone talk in this where we had to reach out to each other individually and all of our witnesses were virtual. So I definitely think I appreciate hearings being virtual. 
uh, scheduling conferences and all of those and status conferences. However, trials are much easier live. So I know we talked a little bit about um, the potential for jurors to have poor internet connections. Um, and so what about juror perceptions of a party um, or witness who has a bad connection or bad lighting in a Zoom call? Do you think that that could impact trials and hearings? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, if well-prepared lawyers think about their presentations carefully, uh, and if, if there's a lack of confidence that everything I'm presenting has been absorbed by all of the jurors, then trust in the outcome of the trial will diminish as well. And clients will feel gypped, perhaps, in various contexts. Uh, we couldn't present our case. And uh, so that's, that should be of, of, of great concern. Going back to a prior question, while I think of it, the constitutional requirements that are at risk in virtual trials, there's another uh, requirement in the Constitution that uh, an accused must be able to confront the witnesses against her or him. And that means that you have to you know, not only have a chance to question the witnesses uh, that are testifying, but you have to see them in as vivid a way as possible. And so um, to maintain the confrontation clause, in many courts, they, they have the defendant in a courtroom with a witness on the witness stand, and everybody else is participating virtually. Uh, and or, or others could be in the courtroom as well for in a safe way. But, uh, you know, the, the pandemic and virtual trials uh, create another challenge uh, as far as the confrontation clause. We're figuring out during this pandemic that we have a true technological divide. We see everyone with cell phones and think they're all created equal. And that's not the case. The cell phone is also not the best method for someone to participate in a trial. And even if they have a cell phone, you don't know, like the broadband connection, you don't know what strength the signal is going to be. Also, I think with as far as the perception and how witnesses are perceived, when you're dealing with different dialects or someone that may sound different from what someone is used to hearing, that then also becomes an issue when you're virtual because that's amplified because you can't really listen that it's coming through a system instead of you being in person. And I think we've all experienced that someone that may have what we consider, which you, your individual self may consider to be an accent because it doesn't sound like you. If you're over the phone with them, it's sometimes harder to have a conversation. It's the same thing with the trial. But if you're in person, you're like, oh, I understand everything they're saying perfectly. Lucretia's uh insightful statement uh, reminds me also of uh, juror privacy and how, uh, how we have to maintain that. Jury deliberations, when all the evidence is in and the jury is sent back to deliberate, challenge faced in these current times, how are they gonna be able to communicate with each other with the same kind of confidentiality and closed door quality of a deliberation room? No one's supposed to be in the jury room except the jurors. Okay, so let's say a spouse or a friend is, has walked in during deliberations and he or she hears the deliberations. 
or what if you know uh, you know some people play hardball um, and are unethical? Maybe there's going to be a an effort to break into the deliberation somehow and find out what's going on. I'll be very interested uh, how they handle that in the in the courts that have had jury trials. And by the way, California is not the only place. Jacksonville, Florida, Austin, Texas, parts of other states, not the whole state. Here in Maryland, uh, in Montgomery County, they've had two jury trials already. So there's experimentation. Uh, there's a variety of things going on. And there's a lot to be learned from these courts. And that's why we at the National Center for State Courts have webinars for anyone who wants to participate, learning uh, lessons from these courts that have already done it. Great. Thank you both so much for your time today. Just one final question. Do either of you have any predictions for how you think this will play out um, once we're over at the pandemic? I don't know if I have any predictions, but I have a couple of wishes or hopes, I guess. Um, my hope is that we do continue to virtually handle status conferences and things like that, because it, it just works more efficiently coming in every few months for to say the status of a case hasn't changed is time consuming it costs the client more they have to pay me to park pay me to be there whereas all of the status conferences that i have held virtually at maximum have been 30 minutes and usually most of that was just waiting for my case to be called uh in person is i could be there for two hours or three hours i could be there all morning depending on how full the docket is and so that definitely is more efficient for a client and it's, it's better. So I definitely hope that that happens. I hope that when we do return, that we continue some of the things that we have learned during this and that it is safe. Uh, I don't want us to rush into jury trials with 12 people sitting in a box, plus counsel, plus witnesses and all of that in a room. And then we just end up having to shut down the courts over again because for instance, in Maryland and in parts of North Carolina, I have some people I went to school with, like courthouses are closing every other week because there's an outbreak in a courtroom. And so they have to close for a deep cleaning and they never fully shut down in some counties like we did here in this area. They never fully shut down the courts. And so it just keeps happening over and over again. Those, those are my hopes, like moving forward <laughs> when this is over. I'm going to build on what Lucretia said about the benefits of virtual hearings. Uh, I think that the use of video conferencing is going to be at, at a very high level from here on out. Uh, and I'm thinking of one of the benefits, for example, is in Mojave County, Arizona, fifth largest county in the United States. We just gave them an award for their I IT program to summon jurors virtually instead of requiring them to come to the courthouse. There are some people who live or more than a hundred miles away from a courthouse. And to have the old way of having to drive a hundred miles to the courthouse, that ain't gonna happen anymore. And that's, that's, that's a great benefit. I also think that the way we design buildings is gonna change. And we're not gonna have maybe the need for as many modest sized courtrooms because a lot of hearings will can be handled virtually 
and we can have larger courtrooms that uh, are more health-wise safe for social distancing. And uh, who knows what modern architecture, building architecture and construction is gonna look like, because I, I think it's gonna change uh, in terms of building space. I know that we said that that was our last question, but I'm going to toss in one bonus question. Do either of you have advice for our law student listeners, um, and in particular, our students who are on oral advocacy teams like moot court or mock trial? I think my advice would be to kind of do it like I was doing in March and April. Prepare like you're going into a courtroom, physically, mentally, and in other ways. So prepare just like you would be doing this in person. Because if you do it that way, then you're less likely to make any mistakes. I judged one of these a couple of months ago for a friend that is a professor. I appreciated the students in her class that dressed fully and they seemed to have their little notes right in front of them. And I was like, so they took this seriously. They still didn't matter that it was just video. And then there were some that were dressed a little bit or a lot more casually it seems to be. And so also take advantage of the technology that you had. You don't have to have your printed notes. You can have them right on your screen. I do this in hearings and it looks, it helps you look directly into the camera. It looks like you're, it looks like you are being engaging, but your notes are just right here. So you have no choice but to look here to read. So that's, I guess, my practical tip. I will add that for those students who want to be a litigator uh, after graduation, a lesson I've, I've learned, I've taught a course on jury trials at University of Virginia and now at Georgetown University for the last 15 years. And I don't have a final exam. I require a, the students to observe a jury trial or at least five hours of a jury trial at a minimum uh, at some place during the semester and write a report on what they observed in the courtroom and match it against what we've been talking about in class and the constitutional principles and the, the way people learn and make group decisions, those kinds of things. And in the valuations that I get back, I would say every single class, the predominant commentary is observing a jury trial is the best thing I've done in law school. And so I think that if you have the opportunity during your school years or even after when you're, when you're a licensed lawyer, but if you haven't appeared before a jury, there's nothing quite like being there in person, watching a jury trial and seeing oftentimes how not to do things, what the lawyers should have done. You see what they should have done because you're an impartial observer in the gallery. I encourage that live observation, hopefully not too far from now, we'll all be able to do it again. Thank you both so much for being here today and thank you for your very thoughtful answers. While I think we can all agree that there is a lot of uncertainty in this pandemic, um, there's a couple of things to look out for on the court side. So thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me.